school bus, obviously those silly sort of things. It isn't. That's not what I want to talk about. What I want to talk about is, is, are the things that we often think it is, perhaps, but it isn't. I want to contrast the sort of things that maybe we as Americans, as Westerners, as New Englanders, um, just as humans, fallen humans, might think the church is that it isn't. I want to talk about four of them. There's probably lots more I could. Actually, my original list was five, and there was didn't have enough time to do five, so I, I picked four. Just four things uh, that the church is, and I want to contrast those things with what the Scripture says. And really, the point here is not to, to talk about all things it isn't, but to talk about what it is. So that the accent is on what the Scriptures teach us. So we're going we're gonna to walk through some of those things. And I think you have notes uh, in your bulletin that you can follow along and take notes in. There's, there are some key things that are in our culture that can define the church, at least functionally and maybe subconsciously, for us if we're not aware. There are a lot of different things like this, a lot of different issues, a lot of different perspectives in our culture that can influence the church. One perspective is, uh, is one value in our culture that can really shade how we understand the church is consumerism. Consumerism. And, and I'll talk about that in this message here and there. I won't call it by that name, but but this idea of consumerism, listen to what Mike, Pastor Michael Breen talks about in, in reference to this, and see if you can see this yourself, if you've ever seen it. He says, we live in a culture that revolves around consuming. Every TV commercial, every store, every credit card company, every bank, every TV show or movie, every piece of clothing, car or product, every website, every restaurant, every everything is tailored to fit your desires needs, or personal preference. We are easily infuriated when things don't happen exactly as we want them. We exist in a place that implicitly says this, we are here to serve you and to meet your every women desire. Let us take care of you. What's more, it's never enough. We live in a culture that revolves around consuming. Eventually the house or the car get older And we want new ones. The clothes aren't as fashionable, and we want something more in style. That restaurant is getting boring. We we must find another. Our favorite TV show is wearing thin. So the search begins for the next favorite, and on and on and on. And then he starts to press it home. And he says, most of our churches are built around feeding consumers. And Michael Breen is a church planter, uh, both in England and the United States, so... He speaks from experience and observation. I'd argue 90% of the church's time, energy, and resources are linked to this. But the issue is this. The means you use to attract people to you are usually the means you must use to keep them. In other words, if you use consumerism to attract them to your church, it often means you must continue using it to keep them. Or else they will find another church who will meet their, quote, needs. And yet, that consumer mentality is antithetical to the gospel and to the call of discipleship. Disciples aren't consumers. They are producers. Jesus cared about disciples more than anything else. There's lots of truth in what Pastor Michael Breen has to say about our perception as a church. Now, I didn't read that because I think that our church is filled with consumerism, but I did read it because I think it's around us, it's in us to a degree. And this message is really not so much a corrective to say, oh boy, there's all these problems, I have to address them right now. 
but to say there are all these influences that are constantly pulling us away from what Scripture calls us to. So let's identify them. Let's think about them. Let's think about them in light of Scripture. Let the Scriptures dictate to us. Let the Scriptures determine our expectations of church. So as I go through these things, I want you to just be thinking, hmm, have my expectations ever lined up with what the church isn't? And how do I need to adjust those expectations to put them in line with what the church is? Let me pray and then we'll go through these four different truths. Lord, we ask you right now by your grace to be here with us. We thank you, Lord. The amazing promise that you will be with us, where two or three gather in your name, there are you with them in our midst. We thank you you're here. Lord, this is your church. You are the one that walks among the lampstands, and and you intimately know us in this church, and we ask you for help, O Lord Jesus. Would you rule and reign over us? Would you shepherd this church? Would you teach us and call us and form us and send us in your name to be your body, this local church? body, as part of your broader body, to be your body. Teach each one of us, give us ears to hear, and glorify your name through it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 27. It says, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. And then Paul says to the Corinthians, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. He's talking to a local church. He's talking to a local church that's comprised, most likely, of many house churches that meet throughout the city. We don't know how many. I mean, there might have been tens, hundreds, or more. Um, But this is the church in Corinth. And he's saying that you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. You are many members, and you are together the body of Christ. And this is the truth I want to say, that the church is a body, not a bunch of Christians. The church is a body, not a bunch of Christians. What do I mean by that? Well, a body is certainly a bunch of parts put together. They're parts that are diverse. They're diverse in who they are. They're diverse in their backgrounds. They're diverse in their gifting. They're diverse in their function. Yet they're interdependent and unified. They're interdependent and unified. They're connected one to another. They're not just grouped as all these individuals that happen to be together. They are interconnected. They are interdependent. They are unified. Yes, they're diverse, but they're also united. They're vitally connected. They share the same love, as the Scripture talks about. The same heart, the same faith, the same spirit, the same gospel, the same heavenly Father. There's this connection, there's this bond, there's a union together. The church is a body, not a bunch of Christians. It's a corporate relationship that goes beyond the mere sum of the parts. There's a synergy There's a separate entity that gets formed when Christians come together to form a local body. That's beyond just the the parts themselves. It's beyond a mere conglomeration of spiritual people, spiritual individuals and family that happen to come together and, and coexist alongside each other to some degree. No, there's more than that. There's a union. There's a connectedness. It's a profound connectedness. We have to get that. 
That makes the difference in our understanding that it's a body, this profound connectedness. It's the body of Christ Himself. We are the body. It's interesting that passage, Paul uses this picture of the body as a metaphor. A metaphor is something that kind of is like something, something that explains something, and it explains the body, but it's more than a metaphor, it's a reality. He doesn't say you're like the body of Christ. He says you are the body of Christ. We as a local church are a body, not a bunch of Christians together. We're meant to live together in concert, connected, caring for one another, carrying out our mission, compelling others to believe in Christ, to see Christ in us through our mutual love one for another. In a sense, we are to lose ourselves in the group. We are to lose ourselves in the group. And this is anathema for a Westerner, isn't it? It's all about me and my, my individualism. And the Scripture certainly teaches God values the individual. He creates every individual in the image of God. Every individual is important. But as Westerners, we're taking that truth to its extreme, to the neglect of the corporate. And that God calls us, and we are the body, not just a bunch of Christians. We're not just a bunch of individuals who share something. We are an entity unto itself, a corporate body, a local body. And we are to lose ourselves to an extent in the group. That's the picture behind this. I have a friend who's a, a jazz drummer. Um, and if you're a musician, uh, you know jazz drumming is very challenging. Anyone a jazz drummer? I don't know, Jay. Uh, do you do jazz? Do you drum jazz? Yeah. Uh, I'm not surprised. Uh, if I understand it right, among drummers, like uh, at least in some circles, probably all the jazz drummers consider it the hardest sort of drumming to do. It's, it's kind of, if you're a jazz drummer, you're like a notch up above everybody else. And, that's what my jazz drummer friend told me, at least. Um, <laughs> but he was a student at Berkeley at the time, and I remember, I just loved to hear about it. I, I love music. I, I loved, actually, jazz is one of my favorite forms of music, um, and just loved to, to hear about his experience. And he said, actually, there's this experience that at least jazz drummers look for uh, when you jam together. And if you're good like he, my friend Mike was, you know, uh, you jam and you, you get to know what's going on and you start to get into it and you start to play. The you know, jazz beats are kind of off and all that. It's really hard for me to do. But if you're good, you get into it you get, and jamming and you start syncing together as a group and playing off of each other. And, and the drummer you know, sets the beat in many ways. And he said, you look for what's called the burn. And I tried to look it up and find it. Is this just Mike telling me this or what? But, but he said, it's this place where you get in your playing that you, the kind of the music and the band starts to carry you along. And you're no longer aware of you know, just what you're doing. You're aware of what's happening together. The burn, he called it. And, 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 and uh, you're just carried along by the music and the, what the band's doing. And I like that picture. And I think it's a picture of what we're called to as the church. We're called to, in a sense, play together, contribute our gifts, and as we operate together, as we do this together, and we are certainly playing our part, but it's in concert with everyone else, we should get to the point where we experience the burn, that we're just no longer quite aware of ourselves. We, there's a self-forgetfulness in it. And we're thinking about the group 
and experience, and we're watching Christ work in our midst and work through us and touch lives and transform lives, and we get to the point where we say, oh yeah, that's right, there's, there's me, I forgot about me and all this. That's the picture here. That's the truth that I'm getting at. The, that the church is a body, a unified group, not just a bunch of Christians. Let me ask you, Have you experienced in church with God's people the burn? Have you experienced what it is to start to forget about yourself and live and enjoy what God's doing in the group? Or is your understanding of church really about just you? Your experience? How you felt today and whether worship was good for you or whether your needs are being met? Or have you begun to learn to forget yourself among God's people for His purposes? The church is a body, not a bunch of Christians. The church, second, is a family, not a fine restaurant. A family, not a fine restaurant. I shared this metaphor with our small group the other night, so bear with me if you have to hear it a second time. But in Scripture, there are are lots of instances that instruct us about this reality that the church is a family. The people of God are a family, but the local church is really a family. Ephesians 2, uh, Paul says, Still then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This idea of household is it's not just like you live in the house, but you're part of the family. There's extended family unit. You are members of the family of God. It would be another way to translate it. And then uh, elsewhere, there's many scriptures here. By the way, I think down below they have uh, other scriptures you can look up. But 1 Timothy 5, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters. Paul uses this. And there are many other scriptures you can look up down the bottom there. If you just keep that up, if people want to copy it down. So this idea, this picture of the the church as family is, is important. And, and not a fine restaurant. God is our Father. Christ is our brother. We are connected as family. And this picture of family, again, it's not just a metaphor. It's a reality. The ultimate family is not our biological family. It's the family of God. And biological families are meant for the family of God. And so our, our biological families are pictures of the real family, the ultimate family that God forms and you think, oh, well, what, what, what goes on in a family that makes it a family? Well, you share this connection, don't you, one to another? It's a biological connection. It's an emotional connection, an experiential connection that you have. You're connected to one another. You love each other. You experience acceptance. There's an intimacy. You know each other, yet you still love and accept one another in a healthy family. There's security. There's, you can be yourself in a healthy family. And you're loved, and you know you fit in. You know you belong, and you know, and you know that you'll always belong. There's that picture, and that's, that's what it, uh, goes on in a healthy family. That's actually why it's so hard, these precious things to experience, why it's so hard when our families hurt us. And I know some of us, as I share this, the church being a family, you're probably thinking, well, it doesn't help me because my family was awful. And, and I recognize that that's true. Healing comes for your, perhaps your hard biological family experience in the ultimate family, in God's family. And he will show you what a real father looks like and what real brothers and sisters look like. 
The church is this family to share this deep love and acceptance and security. And that's what he calls us to, to be a family together, to live honestly before each other, to love and accept, to bear with one another, to know one another, to accept one another, to feel secure in the Father and in his family. The church is a family. It's not a fine restaurant, though. And I think sometimes we think of the church as a fine restaurant. What do I mean by that? Well, when you go to a restaurant, you go to a fine restaurant, what goes on? Well, you first expect to pay a pretty high price to eat there, right? And when you come in, you expect the maitre d' to greet you promptly, right? If, it's a, if you're, you know, you're paying for this, right? This isn't McDonald's. This isn't even Applebee's. This is a fine restaurant, right? Uh, nothing wrong against Applebee's, but I wouldn't call it a fine restaurant. Maybe you would. Sorry. If you work for Applebee's, I didn't mean any offense. But anyhow, um, a fine restaurant, you go in, you, you expect to be greeted. You expect to be seated promptly. You expect to be serviced quickly. You expect the waiters or waitresses to be polite and concerned with your welfare. You expect the table setting to be impeccable. Right? You expect it to look good. You expect the food to be mouth-watering. And you expect to pay for it as well. Now, if you went to a fine restaurant and the maitre d' was rude, you know, just you came in and like, who are you? Do you have reservations? What are you doing here? Look, we're kind of full right now. Or inattentive, right? Just like you came in and, and, and you know, he seated the people who came in after you first and then forgot about you. You'd be upset, right? I mean, this is a fine restaurant. I'm paying for this. I expect to be treated well. If you went to the table and there was uh, some stains on the tablecloth, some crumbs from the last clients, you'd be upset, right? What's going on here? This should be impeccable. It's dirty. And as you got served by the waiter or waitress, they, you, they, you noticed that they were arguing with each other and bickering and stuff and ups, upset with something. And they kind of brought, as they're waiting on you, they're like, ah, I can't stand that guy. And then, then they're trying to attend to you. You'd be like, hey, look, keep your problems somewhere else. I'm paying for this. You know, I, I shouldn't deserve this. If the food came and it wasn't, it was cold or, or overdone, you'd be upset, right? Sometimes we bring that thinking to the church. We bring the thinking that this is a, the church is a fine restaurant. I expect to get what I pay for. I expect things to be done a certain way. I expect to be treated this way. I expect the food to be warm and delicious. I expect the, the setting to be impeccable. I expect to be greeted warmly and, and to be attended to well. I expect to be waited on in a conscientious, polite way. And those are all good things. There's nothing wrong with that. I, and that we want to strive for that. But that's not what the church is. The church is not a fine restaurant. It's a family. Think about it. If you are eating dinner with your family at the kitchen table, Are you okay with that maybe, you know, maybe it's served a little late that day and you're not attended to right away? You had to wait a half hour or an hour hungry? Is it okay? If, if there's a little bit of bickering in the family, among the kids, as background, is it okay? It's not preferable, but is it okay? If there's a little bit of a stain on the tablecloth, do you, excuse me, there's a stain here. What do you, this is terrible. No, you're okay if there's some crumbs. You're okay. You're okay with that. Why? 
you actually pay a lot more for that experience than you do for a fine restaurant, right? Parents, uh, to the tune of, I don't know, what is it, 20000 per kid? Or I don't know what it is. That's a lot of money for a dining experience. But you don't, you don't complain about it that way. Why? Because you understand this is a family, not a fine restaurant. The church is a family, not a fine restaurant. We are the family of God. And certainly, we want the meals here to be as good as they can be. We want service to be as best as it can be. And this is not just Sundays, but small groups and all of who we are as a church. We want to do our very best. And I would expect you as a family want to do your very best in what goes on in your house. But when we understand that it's a family, we're okay when things are not perfect. We're patient. We realize that the objective is not my convenience, but the lives of people. And that's the same with the church. So let me ask you, for you, uh, do you treat the church as a family or a fine restaurant? Do you understand King of Grace Church or your whatever church you attend as a family or a fine restaurant? And I know so many of you understand this and practice this. But maybe for some of us today is the day to start treating King of Grace Church or your home church as a family, not a fine restaurant. Next one I want to talk about is that the church is a holy number, not a hazy network of friends. And you can imagine I had trouble alliterating this title. Um, but it's a holy number, not a hazy network of friends. And, and, and what I'm getting at with that is that the church needs to be identified precisely, and it needs to be a holy people. They need to look like Jesus. They can't be a haphazard, hazy network of friends where you don't know who's in or who's out just kind of a loosey-goosey group. You know, I don't know what it's about. I really don't know fully what they believe. I don't know. There's people doing all different things. I don't know. Where's the, what, what, what defines this group and who's in it? We don't know. It's to be a holy number. And I'm going to take you through the Scriptures to teach on this. This is important to get. The reason I wanted to emphasize this one is because there are so many metaphors and pictures of the church that are very relational in Scripture. And, and appropriately so. But sometimes we can think of the church and, and relate to it in such an organic, relational way that we forget. There are, there are parameters to the church. There's the, there are borders. There are definitions to the church. And we have to understand that. Otherwise, we can just kind of make it a hazy network of friends. And in some ways, this addresses the question of, why should I join this church? And for us as a church, we are very relational. And we are very embracing of people wherever they are in their journey. We love them. We want to be patient with them if they're believers and just checking out a church. We're, that's who we are on purpose. But you can begin to wonder, well, why not just kind of be in the perimeter, you know, and just be in that place forever? Because I get all the benefit, right? I mean, these people are so loving. They just bring me right into their lives. They care for me. I can be involved with just about everything. Why should I become a member? I just like the hazy network of friends thing. But the church is not a hazy network of friends. The church has a hazy network of friends, and that's good. That's Christ-like. There's going to be people in all different places. Jesus ministered to the crowd. There was the, the crowd, then there were the disciples, then there was inner core. So we're, we're to, to do that. But it is not who the church is. The church is a holy number. It's a well-defined group of people who are called to a life of holiness together. And so I want to take us through some scriptures, and I, and I want to tell you up front that these are some parts of scripture that aren't necessarily enjoyable to read. 
And I just want to ask you uh, to, to give me a little time to walk through this, to not be offended right away or not be condemned right away. Because there's things I'm going to say as we look through it that when I first say them, they're going to be like, whoa, what are you saying, Paul? And you need to hang on for a little bit. So you could be offended or you could feel condemned if you draw a conclusion too quickly. So bear with me. I think in the end you'll understand and I hope you'll be helped and encouraged. So I'm going to walk through two scriptures, two sections. One, 1 Corinthians 5, the other in Matthew 18. 1 Corinthians 5 situation. Paul's addressing the church in Corinth again. And in in Corinth, uh, they're a church that's dealing with lots of problems, with lots of people who are struggling. And there's people who are struggling in different ways. Uh, There are people across the spectrum of struggle. And really every church and every Christian at different times in their life is in somewhere along that spectrum. They could just be slight struggles with trying to understand and believe Jesus and walk in obedience. There could be more serious struggles. What Paul's addressing here is just not a run-of-the-mill struggle, not, not a periodic struggle or you know, just a one-time type struggle, but a very serious struggle someone is having with sin where they have refused to get help and to, to pursue a remedy. Okay, So it's an ongoing, very serious situation. Understand that. So I just want you, if you are someone who struggles occasionally with things, this is not for you. If you're going to get help and stuff, this is not for you. This is for someone who's unrepentant. He's not turning, he's not getting help, and and it's a serious situation. So listen, as Paul talks, as God speaks through his word, 1 Corinthians 5, 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. Quote, purge the evil person from among you. So Paul's addressing this situation where there's somebody who, who is living in an adulterous, incestuous relationship. It's very serious. And, and it's been going on. And the Corinthians are thinking, aren't we gracious to just kind of bear with this guy and to be patient? And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. That's not how you deal with this guy. You need to protect the church, and you need to work for restoration of this man. So, you need to cast him out of the church. You need to tell him, look, look, friend, your lifestyle is, is in denial of your profession of faith, and you're not getting help, and you're running this way, and you cannot, we cannot allow you to think that you're in the church when you're out. You're acting as if you're outside the church. So, Paul says, cast him out. 
so that his so that his body might be destroyed, that his spirit might be saved. The idea is that he'll experience, when he's cast out of the the defined church, he'll be outside of the protective relationships and blessings of God that are within the church. And in that place will be in grave danger. You see, when Satan wants to get a hold of someone's life, he, he will isolate them. Get them away from the flock. When you're away from the flock, you're in danger of being eaten by the wolves. And that actually, what it's, Paul is doing this on purpose. He's saying, stop protecting this guy for his own good. Put him out. And then in that place, he'll see the consequences of his choices. And, and, and by God's grace, in that place, he will be preserved for the final day. That he will, he will repent and, and come to Christ. Now, by the way, you can read 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and see what appears that this man actually is restored. He comes back repentance. So Paul is telling them to do this. And it's interesting that the church actually has the authority to define who's in and who's out of the church. It has the authority to draw the lines. And it must exercise that authority, is what he's saying. Look with me at one other verse that I think will help fill this out. Matthew chapter 18. Jesus is teaching here about the same sort of situation. And he says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. So that's the same sort of situation as 1 Corinthians 5, right? So this, if you keep on appealing and he doesn't listen, you have to say, look, you're not in the church anymore. You're out. You're like a Gentile tax collector. You're, you're not a believer. We're, we don't see you as a believer. doesn't necessarily mean you cut off all contact, but you cut off the sort of relationship you would have with him previously as a believer. Hanging out, having him over the house and just, you know, sharing fellowship. It's a different relationship. It's a cutting off in that. Continuing, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth. Now these verses are sometimes preached or presented in a different context. The context here is what we're talking about, defining the church. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on anything on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Wow. Do you see what he's saying in the second part of the verse? He says, guys, practice this procedure when somebody is erring, when it's a serious sin. This isn't run-of-the-mill stuff, serious stuff that's going on. You practice this procedure. And then he says, truly I say to you, so when you practice this, when you cast them out, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, when you guys say this guy is outside the church, he's outside the church. Heaven is behind that declaration. Heaven is saying yes. Now, it has to be done biblically, right? The church can't just do it and Jesus backs it up no matter what you do. When it's done biblically, heaven is behind that. And heaven is saying this one, if they continue, is not in heaven. Will be, is, not, is cast out. So what you bind is bound. What you loose is loosed. What the church does, it determines whether there's someone belongs to Jesus or not. And then he says we're two or three are gathered in my name, there am I. He means His authority is with you in doing this. It's Jesus Himself 
who's working through his church to define the church and to say whether this one is in or out. I hope that makes sense. I hope you can see that. It's clear in Scripture. So the church acts. Jesus backs it up. That's really amazing. That's very sobering. It means we must do it biblically. We must do it carefully. But we must do it. And what it, what it gets at related to what I'm talking about is that the church is defined. It's not nebulous. It's not a, just a network of friends. It's defined. The parameters are lives of faith and holiness. doesn't mean that you're the holiest person in the world, but there's a basic, basic commitment to trust Christ, to depend on Him, to get His help, to get others' help to, as He uses them to keep believing and keep obeying. That's the difference we look for when, when there's a, a desire to get help, when there's a repentance. I don't want to do this. I, I, need, I need help. That's what defines a believer. And when someone stops doing that over the long haul, they're in danger. And they'll stop being holy. And the church must be defined as a holy people. And it must be defined as a specific number as well. You need to know who's in and who's out. These are specific people that are being put out. So we must have a way to identify who's in and who's out. We need to know. And so for us as a church, that's why we practice official membership. Because we are committed to just loving people and welcoming them and being patient with them. But there's a time, if you're a believer, to to say, no, I'm in. I belong to this church. And that's why we have official membership, so we can say, this is in. And we together are committed to one another. And there's a commitment level that's above your commitment just to someone who professes the name of Christ, but is not yet a member. There's accountability, there's church discipline, there's care, there's protection in that. It's a scary thing to be outside that number. Let me say that. It should be a scary thing to be outside the number of a local church. Now, I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to scare you into the membership class. Don't hear me. There's a process. I understand that. We're in transition. God allows for that, okay? But if you are remaining in that place, you should be afraid. You should be scared. Because in that number, there's protection. There's safety. There's blessing. There's a place for you, you to use your gifts to bless others. And when you're outside that number, you are in danger. It's sadly ironic, sadly ironic that for many American Christians, it's considered a freedom not to belong to a local church. When scripturally, it's the very worst thing that can happen to a believer. To be cast out of a local church or to live outside of a local church. Now there's loads of qualifiers here. I want you to hear that, okay? People have had hard experiences in unbiblical churches. I, I, that's, that's why we're patient. But there's a time when you must decide in obedience to the Lord, in fear to count yourself among that holy number. Mark Dever says something pretty shocking. I just want to share the quote. I think it does well in explaining what I'm saying. He says, Mark Dever is a pastor down in D.C. He says, if you are not a member of the church you regularly attend, you may well be going to hell. There's more to say. I don't mean that for a second that you literally have to have your name on a membership card in a church somewhere to go to heaven. I believe in justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. At the same time, in the New Testament, it seems that the local church is there to verify or falsify our claims to be Christians. 
The man in 1 Corinthians 5 who was sleeping with his father's wife thought of himself as a Christian. I don't care how much you cry during singing or preaching. If you do not live a life marked by love toward others, the Bible has no encouragement for you to think that you're a Christian. None. Do you want to know that your new life is real? Commit yourself to a local group of saved sinners. Try to love them. Don't just do it for three weeks. Don't just do it for six months. Do it for years. And I think you'll find, and others will too, whether or not you love God. The truth will show itself. Joining a church won't save you. It's only the death of Christ that saves you. He alone is our righteousness. He, but he, if He is really our righteousness, if we really love Him whom we have not seen, it will show itself by us loving those that we do see. The church is a holy number, not a hazy network of friends. It's defined by actual membership and a holy life in Christ. Let me ask you, have you put a premium on being a member of a local church? Or is it an option? God has great blessing and safety and fruitfulness for you if you are a believer and being part of a local church. Final one, really quickly. The, temp, uh, the church is a temple, not a tourist attraction. 1 Corinthians 3 and elsewhere tells us about this. It says, Do you not know that you, plural, are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroy God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. There's this picture in Scripture of the church as the temple. Well, why would that be used? And that, it's, Again, it's a reality, not just a picture. Well, a temple is the place where God dwells, where God manifested His presence, where He made Himself known, where, where His people experienced Him. And, and really that experience was an experience of worship. It's the place where they came to live for God, to rejoice in God, to acknowledge who He is, to relate to Him. They came there for worship. A temple is about worship. It's about the presence of God. And, and, and really it's about our highest joy in that. I love the Westminster Confession of Faith that says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him to, to get forever. The chief end, one end, right? Two ways that go together to glorify Him and enjoy Him. So that the, to, they go together. Joy comes in glorifying God. That's the chief end of man. That's the purpose of the temple. To experience Him, to worship Him, to live for Him. The church is a temple, not a tourist attraction. Similar to my, an earlier one, but just a little slightly different. A tourist attraction. What's a tourist attraction about? You go to a tourist attraction to, be, to basically to be awed. To, be, to, to experience something you know, that's, that's extraordinary. You go to Disney World to have a fantastic time at Disney World. You go to the Statue of Liberty to, just, you know, to enjoy that. You go up to the uh, Prudential top of the hub you know, to look out and just, wow, look at all that. So it's about being awed by something else. The church is the other way around in a sense. You are awed by God, but it's about coming to not sit there passively as an observer to take in, but to give to God and to His people. To worship. To give yourself to Him in praise. And, and on Sundays and, and beyond, through, through really the whole experience of, of the church, of the life of the church. Because worship is not just about singing songs and, and lifting your hands. It's about how you live. And the wonderful thing, we talk about this in our small group, the wonderful thing is, God equips us for that. He gives us gifts. Every believer has a gift. Has a gift to contribute. Every believer has a way to serve. 
a way to worship God by blessing others. And, and we are called to come to give to the Lord and give to His people. So the church is a temple. It's a place of worship. It's a place where you offer your gift. I have a friend who every Sunday, and I think he did this in small group too, he would, before he came, he would say, Lord, would you give me a gift to give away today? That's how he came to church. Give me a gift to give away. And then when he came, he thought, this is my joy in my worship, is to give my gift. Each of us as believers, we have gifts. And the wonderful thing is Christ has come and transformed us. John 4, he tells the Samaritan woman that, that the Lord is seeking worshipers. God is taking the initiative to go after us. He wants worshipers. He wants to bless us. And so He sent His Son to come and live a righteous life as a perfect worshiper. And then offer up that life on the cross, dying for our sins being buried, being raised again on the third day, so that as we turn to Him and trust in Him, we are forgiven. And in that place of understanding and turning and trusting, we are transformed by the Holy Spirit into worshipers. Yes, we're imperfect worshipers, but there's a new life that happens at that moment where we encounter the cross and encounter the gospel and, and turn and trust. It's a wonderful work of regeneration, uh, theologians call it, where we now have power to be worshipers. And that's our lifestyle. And He equips us. He gives us gifts. So we each come on Sundays. We each come going to small group. We each come even in just times, casual relationship times, with a gift to give away. And so let us think about it this way. Not as coming to a tourist attraction to be awed or impressed by a good message or a wonderful performance of the worship team or whatever it might be. But to come to offer your gift. Whatever it might be. You know, most gifts in the church are not gifts, public gifts. So I don't mean, you know, you've got to work on your sermons or, or you've got to be ready to come up to the mic. The most common gift that I have observed and other surveys that have been done show this are, is the gift of helps. Have you ever heard of that? It's in Scripture. It's just the gift of, of having the ability, the sensitivity to meet the needs of others who need help. And that, that's a gift I see at work in our church. It's shown, I think, through the many different Sunday ministries, greeters, ushers, even teachers, I think, operate in that. That might be your gift. So maybe it's just, Lord, give me a gift. And maybe you come to church and there's somebody who's new or going through a hard time and you're going to be the one who says, how are you doing? Can I pray for you? Maybe you bring by a meal later that week or something like that. But let us come and think of the church as a temple, not a tourist attraction, a place we come for worship. If the band could come up as we close. just want to encourage you to think through these different things, these different truths about the church, what it is and what it isn't, and consider what God would be calling you to do. I think for all of us, there's adjustments to make. I don't think there's terrible problems with our church in these areas, but I do think that these other mindsets have influenced what we think about the church, and God wants to help us. So before we close in song, I just want to encourage you to maybe close your eyes and just ask the Lord, Help me to see where I need to make a change and give me power. The power doesn't come from you, by the way. It's good news. God loves you. He first loved you, so then you can go and love others. The power comes from Him, but ask Him for that power. Ask Him for that change. And let us watch God work to do more and more above and beyond all we could ask or imagine. And He be glorified through our church.
Amen. Just take a minute to pray and then we'll close in song.